Well, thank you for talking to us again, Joe. This is so fun. Yeah, I'm really, I'm looking forward to it because so many, so I, I prepped by listening to my podcast from before and figuring out like what has changed and what hasn't and, and different things like that. Was it weird to listen to? Like, how did it feel to listen to that? It wasn't weird. I've listened to it before. And I feel like everything I said before was completely true for me and very, I don't know, from the heart, like just really, I don't know how to say it, like very truthful. And yet so many of those things have changed in perspective. Hi, friends. I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best, and this is Cocoon, Stories of Gestation. We're so glad you're here to share another story with us. We're talking with Jill today, and for some of you, her voice may be familiar. We spoke with Jill a few years ago and told her story in episode 19, I Could Bring Him to His Family. We've talked before about how these stories capture a moment in a journey. Sometimes it's helpful to look back at how things have progressed and changed, which is what we were doing with Jill today. So if you haven't heard our previous conversation with her, or you want a refresher, go listen to episode 19, I Could Bring Him to His Family. She talks about mental illness, unfulfilled hopes, and placing her son for adoption. Then come back here to see how life can make a 180. As she says, everything she talked about in 2016 was very truthful, and yet time changes everything. Jill's 2016 life is hardly recognizable to the late 2019 version we are sharing here. I actually sat down to write some notes about what I had talked about and like how I feel differently now or what, what exactly changed. And my notebook was commandeered by my daughter. Yes, her daughter. So obviously things have taken a turn. When we spoke with Jill in 2016, her son, Felix, whom she placed with a friend of hers, was about a year and a half old. I guess it was... Not too long after we had done the first podcast that I got pregnant with Naomi. And there definitely is a big jump between how I felt that I couldn't be a mom, the the right kind of mom with, with Felix, to actually becoming a mom to Naomi. And then after Naomi, I really felt like I wanted her to have a sibling. And so two weeks ago, I gave birth to another daughter, Katie. Jill had placed Felix for adoption because at the time she got pregnant with him, her life didn't seem stable. She didn't have a job. She was living in housing supportive to people with mental health issues after coming off a traumatizing stint in a homeless shelter. Her depression was sometimes severe and debilitating. Even though she had very much wanted to be a mom, she didn't feel like she could be the kind of mom that a child needed and that she wanted to be. The vision she had had for her life family, motherhood, career, seemed impossible to achieve. But it still beckoned to her, and she never lost hope that somehow her life might move closer to that vision. Her life did keep moving, as it does. In fact, it wasn't too long before it seemed that everything had changed. So going from Felix to Naomi, I think the biggest thing for me was my mental health. My doctor had been very specific about my care, my, my medication for my mental health after 
the birth of Felix because hormones can be all over the place. And he started me on a specific drug and I call that medication my magic bullet. Once we got up to the dosage that helps me the best, it was like a 180 turn in my ability to cope and my ability to have a better outlook on life overall. And and as I mentioned with Felix, I think that my mental health was one of the biggest obstacles I felt to being a good mom to him and probably the number one reason that I placed him for adoption. And when that obstacle no longer existed for me, I felt like I was ready and able to be a mom. Although Jill, who was in her early 40s, wasn't married, she knew she wanted to be a mom more than anything and was willing to do it alone. And it seemed like something both her mind and her body were ready to do again right after Felix was born. I remember having this conversation with my therapist shortly after Felix was born about how I felt like I wanted to get pregnant. And I, at the time, I was still like, that's probably not really what I should be thinking about and, and the realistic life expectation. And she said, well, you know, after you have a baby, it's your most fertile time. And so it's not surprising that your mind is kind of feeding you that idea of like, continuing your fertility but then like a year later I was still thinking about it and decided that you know maybe it was something I really was extremely interested in and was ready for. At that time Jill was also in a relationship but because of a language gap it didn't seem like it would progress toward marriage. And while it was committed and monogamous, Jill is clear that she and her boyfriend were not discussing the possibility of babies when she got pregnant. He had assumed she was taking care of birth control. And at first, she was. So I'll be completely honest and straightforward. His desire to be a father was not really taken into account when I got pregnant. Like, it was all my doing and all my decision so I, um, a lot of times people will be like, oh, well, you know, the father needs to take responsibility. Um, in fact, I have a friend who very strongly felt like, well, he needs to step up and help you with Naomi. And I was like, I actually feel very strongly the other way that if it was all my decision and my my desire and he didn't know that that was the plan I don't think it's fair to ask him to contribute I I mean I know there's the whole argument of like well it was his sperm it was his like he was you know it's 50 50 but I think there's a mental part to it also it's not all just physical but honestly, even though Jill's pregnancy was a surprise to him, he was and continues to be supportive. He's very emotionally supportive, and we talk at least daily on, a, on video. So I should preface that 
by saying that I've moved out of state uh, away from him. And so we talk daily via video and he is very much involved in the emotional and, and loves seeing Naomi grow up and I involve her in all of our conversations. And so he's very emotionally supportive, but I haven't asked him to be financially supportive in any way since her birth because I didn't feel like I, I, I really, I mean, I know other people might not agree with this, but I feel very strongly that it's not fair to him. After Naomi was born, Jill also felt very strongly that she wanted her daughter to have a sibling, someone to share and compromise with, among other considerations. And so when Naomi was about a year old, and again, without her boyfriend's knowledge or approval, she took matters into her own hands to try to get pregnant again. And she did. Katie was born in October of 2019, just a couple of weeks before we talked to her for this podcast. But early in her pregnancy with Katie, Jill made some big changes in her life. Or rather, her life continued to change and Jill continued to adapt. The job she had teaching dance and movement to nonverbal autistic teenagers at a high school in the Bronx was not going well, and Jill felt that she was being pushed out. The prospects of finding another job with the Department of Education or any place that would pay well, accommodate her home life, and be good for her mental health, were daunting. With children to care for, Jill decided it was time to reconsider her commitment to New York City. She'd lived in New York City most of her adult life, and it really felt like home. She loved the pace, the diversity, the feeling of knowing the places and events that were talked about casually on her favorite TV shows. More importantly, New York is a very accepting place. And although Jill had made some non-traditional choices, she felt supported and cared for. At the same time, Jill was intimately aware of the New York City school system and knew that she did not want her children to attend school in New York. The tug of war between New York City and her children obviously came down on the side of her family. So I thought that uh, an interstate move to where family was around and might be willing to help or where childcare was cheaper, or just, you know, that where raising kids is easier. I, I thought that there would be, um, it would be easier to put some of those teaching artists or finding another position in a public school or any, you know, private studios, anything that I, I felt like it would be easier to put those into place. I have since come to realize that it's not being as easy as I thought it would, but we're dealing with that and hopefully it'll fall into place. The other reason, if, if somebody asks me why I moved from New York City, but the number one thing I tell them is that I didn't want to educate my children in New York. I think the public schools in New York are very complex, but it's extremely difficult to navigate um, getting into a good school and staying in good schools and getting an actually good education. So just like I wasn't willing to subject Felix to my mental health or to the constraints of what I was able to give him, I, I'm not willing to subject my children to the constraints of an education in New York City. So that's the number one thing I tell people. 
but it's in fact only part of the whole complete story. So, when Jill was just a few months pregnant with Katie, she packed up and moved away from New York City to where, she hoped, things would be a little easier in the long run. And on this point, Jill was indeed playing the long game. Part of the story will flesh out as we go. She moved to live closer to her mom in the hope that being near her family would be helpful to her as a single mom, but she wasn't exactly welcomed with open arms. I don't think anybody that wasn't family was as disapproving as my family has been. I'm still, there are still days where I'm like, well, I'll just buy a plane ticket back to New York City. And sometimes with it, with actual intention. But in fact, it's it's interesting. I, I, you know, Katie was born two weeks ago and I actually feel more at peace about being in this other state since she was born than I have been before. And I feel like a little bit it's because like the other shoe has dropped and I know what to expect now. Whereas before she was born, I wasn't sure what to expect. Although it has not been easy and her family has not been fully on her side, Jill does have reason to hope that in time, things will change there as well. Back in 2016, when Jill got pregnant with Felix, she made a pretty tough choice. She decided not to tell her mom. But I think it's important to preface the conversation with my mom that she doesn't have the best mental outlook on life. Um, She struggles with, uh, well, I'm just going to say it. She has a personality disorder and that um, her sense of reality is usually very different from other people's and her personality disorder actually kind of goes hand in hand with the rules being so specific in our church community. So she has very rigid beliefs about how things should be in life. Everything from how much water you should use in the bathtub to, I I mean, I could just go on and on. But the rules that we follow in church fit right in with her, her personal beliefs of rules in life. So I knew, well, when I moved to New York City, she didn't talk to me for three years because I moved to New York City and moved away from her. And so I often joke, even though it's not as much of a joke, I, I know what the punishment for moving to New York City is, which is a severe three-year non-communication. So I wonder what the punishment for getting pregnant is, because that's a much worse breaking of the rules. And, um, and, uh, so, you know, I just never told her about Felix. I, I, it wasn't intentional. It just, it never came up. I didn't know how to broach it. I didn't want to fracture our fragile relationship. And in fact, I've 
reflected on it quite a bit because in a lot of ways I felt like I was protecting her from the knowledge of me being the person that she didn't think I was and not so much of it being like I don't feel like telling her the truth. Her pregnancy did not come up in conversation and neither Jill nor her mom visited each other that year. So Felix's pregnancy and birth and adoption and Jill's sadness and grief and hopes for her son went without notice by her own mother. But a couple of years later, when so much had changed in Jill's mental health and circumstances, Jill's mom did come to New York to visit her. At the time of that visit, Jill was already about eight weeks pregnant with her older daughter, Naomi, and wrestling with when and how to tell her that she was going to have a baby. As easy as it had been to keep Felix's existence a secret, she knew it would be impossible to keep another baby, one she intended to raise, from her mother. And even though Jill was sick from the pregnancy, she couldn't bring herself to do it during that visit. You know, there's a lot of a lot of things that I'm not able to talk to my mom about, unfortunately. And so I, I never ended up bringing it up with her. And um, so for the next, what was it, I guess nine weeks before I let her know, I thought a lot about how I'm going to tell her. And I would think, you know, t- today I'm going to call her. Today I, today I should tell her. Or I'm going to call her tomorrow. Or, you know, it, it, it kept going on like that. And um, I finally said to my dance therapist, I said, um, I need you to be the moral support when I tell my mom. So I asked her if she would be in the room when I made the phone call, that she didn't have to participate in the phone call conversation, but that I didn't think I could tell my mom without having that support. So we met one day and and I called my mom and, I remember I I there was something very mundane that we started out talking about. And then I said to her, I said, Mom, I have something to tell you. And I said, I'm pregnant. And there was a pause. And she said, Thank you for telling me. Then she said, well, how far along are you? And I told her, and she said, well, maybe you shouldn't come visit this summer because you'll be showing. And that made me sad because it's just not how I had dealt with Felix's pregnancy or how I was dealing with Naomi's pregnancy. I wasn't hiding it from anybody. It wasn't a secret. But to my mom, it should So we ended our conversation, and she called me back maybe 30 minutes later and said, uh, I don't think I ever want to come visit you again, and I don't think you should ever come visit me. And then she hung up. 
The tension Jill had been feeling for so many months was released, and she braced herself for the years of silence she thought were coming. But Jill is very sensitive to her mom, and she was very aware of the fact that she had just rocked her world in a very strong way. So rather than turning her back and walking away from her mom towards someone who might be more supportive, she made another phone call. I called her bishop, and I said, somebody might want to go check on my mom because I just broke some news to her that she's taking very hard, and I worry how it will affect her. And I think that it would be good for her to have some support because... She won't let me be that support, but I think she needs it from somewhere. So I called her bishop and I called her best friend and told her, you know, I I really hope that you can reach out to my mom and give her some support. The best friend ended up being a go-between for Jill for the rest of her pregnancy and the next couple of months as well. Naomi was born in November of 2017, three weeks early. She was jaundiced and tiny, and it was hard for Jill. The friend encouraged Jill's mom to call and give her some advice, which she did. But after that one phone call, the silence continued for a few more months. When Naomi was born, Jill was still living in supportive housing where babies were not allowed. In February, when Naomi was three months old, Jill was told she needed to move out and into family housing. Through the friend, Jill invited her mom to come and help her move. And surprisingly, shockingly, she did. She came. After she came to help me move, she kind of completely fell head over heels in love with Naomi, which I'm extremely glad for. And she um, came back to visit, I think, two or three more times before I decided to move. So... Maybe the punishment for getting pregnant is less than the punishment for moving to New York City. I don't know. It's open for debate. The revival in Jill's relationship with her mom opened some doors for Jill. The first being an open discussion about Felix, which started with the revelation that Jill's mom already knew about him. I didn't even know she knew until I had Naomi. And one day we were... She was visiting with me and Naomi and she said um, well what would you have done if Naomi had been born with special needs you would have had to put her up for adoption again and the word again really struck me because you don't say again unless you knew about the first one so it was then that I knew she knew Uh, she just didn't talk about it. And um, so I actually took a page from her book and decided to talk to her about it as if we'd had conversations about it, like, like she just knew. And so I said, I want to show you something, mom. And I showed her a video of Felix. And she's like, what am I looking at? I said, well, Felix does this and he's really good at this. And I just thought you might be interested in knowing that. With that out in the open and Grandma's love for Naomi blossoming, Jill could see an opening. Maybe not anything to get excited about, but light was coming in through a crack. 
And as Jill's life continued to develop and progress and her job became less stable and she became pregnant again, she moved toward that light, a hope of love and support from her family, and made the difficult decision to leave New York. But as we heard earlier, the move toward family has not been wholly successful. Yet. She has recently been hired as an art teacher at a middle school, which was a big victory. But Jill is living in her mother's house, and her mother is still difficult to live with, and her church leaders were less supportive than what she had been met with in Brooklyn. What Jill really wanted, and still wants, is to be part of the community, her family, her neighborhood, her church congregation, and it seems like the best way she knows how to do that, being there in all of her messiness and vulnerability and openness, might be strange and difficult for those around her to process. She has felt coldness and disapproval from the places she is most comfortable and familiar with, her family and her church. I, I think that my openness and how I accepted my mistakes and I was open about it and I didn't necessarily need other people's approval, that I was comfortable with where I was. And I think often that there are a lot of people within the community that maybe are doing things that um, they're not as open about it and they never are approached because nobody even knows. And I think how interesting it is that I want to be a part of the community and yet I'm being told I can't be. Whereas somebody else is able to be a part of the community just because they're not open about what they do. It makes me really sad to think that I can't be a part of that community. It took Naomi to, to a Halloween party last night at church, and she never has a chance to play um, like we don't go on a lot of play dates here. Yet, we don't know a lot of people, and um, I feel strongly that she needs a lot of that socialization. And so yesterday when we were at the Halloween party, they had a, a period of time where the kids played games while the adults prepared for the trunk or treat. I had the distinct thought that these are the activities that I want to raise my children doing. I want them to learn socialization from these kids and to have these experiences that I can't give them any other way. Uh, certainly I can find another church congregation and, and I don't know exactly what, activities they have for kids, but I know that I would prefer just being with the ones that I already feel comfortable with. With so many changes happening in Jill's life, the move, the new baby, the job search, it would go a long way to have something familiar to hang on to and rely on. Jill has tried to do that in keeping close to her family and her church. When we spoke with Jill a few months ago, she was fearful that her bishop would take action to exclude her from participating in her church community. But since then, she has talked to her bishop and feels more secure in her place at church. And that highlights one of the really great assets that Jill has as a single mom. 
and actually as a human being. She talks to people. She's open about her needs. And she's really good at asking for help. Like how she asked her dance therapist to sit with her while she made the call to her mom. How she asked her mom's friend to be a bridge between her and her mom. Even how she asked her friend in New York if she would be interested in adopting Felix. It's a hard-won gift, but a blessing for pretty much everyone. I think it's, um, it stems from my childhood. I have very strong memories of and feelings about how people helped my family when we were growing up after my father left. So my parents divorced when I was 10. I, I think my dad left when I was nine. I don't, I could be, I was in fourth grade when he left. I don't know exactly when the divorce was final, um, but I always say that they divorced when I was 10. So after that, there were a lot of needs for a single mom who had five kids between the ages of 10 and four. And sometimes that help came to us when we asked for it and other times it came simply because people saw a need. But without that specific help from our community, I, I can't even imagine how we would have dealt with some of the obstacles that we had. And I would include in that obstacle, in those obstacles, my mother's mental health. So within our community, one of the, one of the things that I like a lot about our community and that I think works well in strengthening our community is that we are actually assigned each or most individuals are assigned other individuals to visit and kind of almost keep tabs on to know what's going on in their life to assist them with those things and be as much of a support as they can be i have a great respect for the women that came into our home as I was growing up and talked to my mom who has a hard time opening up to people who has a hard time making friends but they came and they were her friends and they were her outlet for those emotions that were very difficult I was aware of a lot of what my mom needed and that I could see that this was fulfilling need. Somehow I've since those experiences I've never been shy about giving somebody else the opportunity to help because I think Helping somebody else helps you as much as you're helping them. And 
even if it's not apparent at the time, I think there's something about that helping relationship that is very nurturing for both sides. Now, to be honest, having heard more of Jill's history, I was somewhat perplexed by Jill's decision to become a single mom. The struggle she faced growing up with her mother after her father left, and the difficult relationship she still manages with her mom. I wondered why she chose to lean so hard into motherhood, and not away from it. Her first baby, Felix, could understandably have been an accident and something to learn from and be more careful about. But Jill didn't see it that way. After having placed Felix and seemingly lost her opportunity to be a mom, something she had wanted her entire life, she realized she would do whatever she could to have that chance again. And luckily, thankfully, she found a job, better medication, and a stable relationship so she could make that choice. I, th- I guess it would be easy to say, look at your relationship with your mom or you know, the complex person that your mother is and, and to say, I don't that you know like to step away from motherhood I guess and say if it's going to be this complicated then maybe I wouldn't want to do it but instead it feels like you're like really leaning into it and like I can I can do this and I can do this better and I can I can be the mom that I wish that my mom had been you know that's a really interesting perspective and I I think that's really true but I've always in my own mind I think one of the things that influences it, I've always wanted to be a mom, but I think I've also always known that I didn't want to be the, a mom the way my mom was. So I, I often reflect on this memory I have where I had a really bad dream. I, I, was, I was probably only four or younger because I was the only one sleeping in my bedroom. <laughs> so... Um, that meant I didn't have sisters to share it with yet and I had this terrible dream and I woke up crying and both my parents came into my room and they tried to console me and I was pretty inconsolable and so my pretty quickly my dad was like okay I'm I'm out of here and didn't want to deal with it and my mom was saying you know Jill, stop crying. You know, just you're you're okay. Just stop crying. And it was at that point that I remembered distinctly that I wasn't crying anymore because of my bad dream, but I was crying because my mom didn't care that I'd had a bad dream. She just wanted me to be quiet to stop crying and I hope that my girls never feel like they're a burden to me or that I don't know how to help them. It's almost unbelievable that Jill could comprehend and process what was happening at such a young age and yet there it is continuing to shape her life decades later. And perhaps it is a little grandiose to quote Gandhi at this point, but I can't help but think that he famously said, be the change you wish to see. Jill didn't grow up in a world that was sensitive to feelings or interested in why she was doing what she was doing, but she has tried to make that world for others and for herself. It seems that she has always had her eye on the big picture of her life, 
and continues to tweak and fine-tune the small details and small moments so that she can get as close as she can to that vision. She and her children, surrounded by family, supported by community, loved and cared for by those around them despite their weaknesses or mistakes, and recognized for all that they have to offer as well. Thanks, Jill, for sharing your story. Thank you, everyone. Please find us on Facebook. Uh, leave us a comment on wherever one leaves comments. <laughs> and you can also I'm find, sure we'll find us somehow. You can also find us on Instagram. A uh, very special thanks to our producer emeritus Ryan Barnhart for always being there for us. Uh, thank you to Tyson Shank and Ellen Barnhart for the music, and to Micah Heiselt who tap dances like you wouldn't believe. Que faites-vous? Que faites-vous?